A person moving in zero gravity feels a pitiful helplessness. One wrong move and you'll find yourself spinning wildly. Everyone becomes a baby again in outer space. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Oh, yeah, baby, Dr. Ulrich Hans Volta. Professor Dr. Ulrich Hans Volta, German physicist, engineer, and former DFVLR astronaut. DFVLR, I had to look this up. Deutsche Forschungs- und Versusanstalt für Luft und Raumfahrt is the, <laughs> is the DFVLR. Wow. And they changed their name in 1989 to the more familiar DLR, or the, you know? the German Research Institute for Aviation and Spaceflight. Yes, quite right. Which, of course, we visited, didn't we? Yeah, big time. Yeah. We should definitely congratulate... China and the United Arab Emirates. Absolutely. Congratulations. Successfully launched to Mars this week. That was pretty exciting, wasn't it? Very exciting. Hope on the old Japanese H2A on 19th July. And we had the Tianwen-1 on the Long March 5 on the 23rd of July. And I'm hoping, Matt, that on the 30th of July, Mm -hmm. on the Atlas 5, we'll see... Mm. The Americans launch Perseverance Ingenuity. Just saying, throwing it out there. Imagine that Ingenuity, the little a helicopter on Mars. Get to the chopper. Do you think that's what they sound like? <laughs> I think Perseverance might say that. Um, yes, yeah. the plutonium's been loaded onto Perseverance. How exciting is that? Oh, my God. We, and we might even this week see an Ariane 5 launch as well with another one of those uh, mission extension vehicles on board. So that's exciting. Jeez. Load up the plutonium. Jamie, this, this week it's all about uh, gravity or the oh. lack of gravity. Oh, yeah. Where do you stand on gravity? Oh, very good, Jamie. You like that? That's very good. Yeah, good that. I've got a guest on this week, Jack Van Loon. Oh, Yes. A Dutch legend. He sent me a paper called Gravity Deprivation. Is it ethical for optimum physiology? Oh, it's a good question. Is it ethical to withhold gravity? No, it is not. No, that's the conclusion. Yes, it is technologically feasible and financially achievable, but most of all, it's unethical not to do so. Technically, it's feasible. And financially, it's achievable. I think that's the that's the lyrics there. <laughs> Turned it into a musical all of a sudden. I mean, who wouldn't want to go to that at the West End? As Werner von Braun said, We can lick gravity, but sometimes the paperwork is overwhelming. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. So Jamie, let's have a let's have a chat about gravity and what we can do about it. Finally, we're going to hear why it's not acceptable ethically for uh, astronauts to not have gravity. And I'm going to ask you a question, Jamie. If I was to sit here and say to you, Jamie, the radiation in space makes all your mm. muscle decrease by 30% on, after only 100 days. 
The radiation is causing the astronauts to have impaired vision. Their hearts are changing shape and getting weaker. The blood is reducing in volume. The radiation is causing astronauts' heads to expand. The radiation is causing the bones to leach away and release calcium into all the soft organ tissues. The radiation is causing the immune system to go all wonky and massively compromised. You'd be absolutely terrified about going into space, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I'd be scared anyway, <laughs> getting on a bomb to go into space. I don't think it would. I don't think I'd let it stop me. I mean, there are risks, but I could get hit over by a truck tomorrow on crossing a boring road. But you've got to admit, you know? if I frame it as if radiation is doing all those horrible things, it it kind of makes you a lot more scared, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. It's just a. It's more of a scary word, though, isn't it? Yeah, but whereas gravity deprivation is absolutely doing all those things that I just mm. told you. But not only that, of course, the, the hilarious thing is, of course, radiation is doing loads of horrible things up to you in space as well. So gravity is absolutely a disaster and radiation is also a disaster. So what the hell are we going to do about the first one? Let's forget about radiation this week. We'll, we'll cover it on another okay. week. Okay. See you later, radiation. What do we need to know? Well, let, we'll go back on some of the stuff that we've talked about on the podcast before. Uh-huh. What do you think gravity is, Jamie? What, what do you think it is? Well, I think it's the force that pulls us all down. It's the force that binds us together. What do you think yeah. causes that force? Um, well, what did, what did Newton think caused the force? Well, that's a good question to start with. What did he say? Oh, Newton was the kind of first person who got to grips with gravity and gave it a formula. Yeah. So so he he knew it was something to do with the masses so that the mass of the planet itself absolutely the size of something depend uh, uh, you know uh, defines the strength of gravity, no? Yeah, well the mass of it, not necessarily the size because of course Okay. A, yeah, uh, well, mass. you know, as we've heard a grapefruit-sized black hole like the one that might be lurking in the solar system is big gravity. Uh, yeah, has quite considerably more gravity than the Earth, which is yes. considerably bigger in size than a grapefruit. So it's it's about mass. So something about mass. Einstein actually talked about something else. And Einstein, after thinking about this thing called the equivalence principle, which we've talked about before, but basically equivalence principle is can be framed like this. You can say when you're inside a metal box being accelerated, you don't know whether it's gravity or acceleration that's causing you to sort of be stuck to the bottom of the elevator floor, if you see what that's I mean. That's right, yeah. So so you just, you, there's nothing you can do. There's no experiment you can perform to, to see which one you're experiencing, gravity or acceleration, linear acceleration. Yes. And I, I'll put the emphasis on linear there because that's important. But, but yeah, going in a straight line, accelerating in a straight line, can't tell the difference between gravity and that. And uh, it's from thinking about that that he realised, actually, what if, just like when you're turning a corner in a car, you feel this fictitious force, i.e. you feel as though you're being pushed out of your seat. But actually what's happening is you're not, you're just carrying off in a straight direction. And the seat is actually pulling you back in because the car is wants to go in another direction and so the seat's having to push you round. So it's actually what's known right. as a, fi a fictitious force because you're being mm. 
because it's been seen from a different reference frame. One's an inertial reference frame and one's a non-inertial reference frame and frame of reference. And so you're so Einstein started thinking about that and realized that maybe maybe gravity was a fictitious for, force and that it was caused by space-time itself bending. So just like when you you know as you go around a planet you feel the gravitational force down to that planet because you're essentially going round this curved path even though you can't see it because it's spacetime yeah. being bent and not and not like a road but that's essentially what's happening and obviously the best way to sort of demonstrate that is the big heavy ball in the middle of a rubber sheet and ball bearings going in orbit around it and stuff like that one of my favorite experiments so but what it does do is say you know there is a way of trying to recreate gravity using acceleration instead right hmm. there is this equivalence principle so you could fly in a straight line in a 1g spacecraft a 1g spacecraft being a spacecraft that's continually accelerating at 1g and then you'd stand on the floor of the spacecraft and it would feel just like earth Yes. And in actual fact, you'd be able to get across the solar system very fast, across the galaxy extremely fast. It would be actually a really good spacecraft. However, where on Earth are you going to get the fuel for all? There's the rock. You know, most rocket engines only fire for a few minutes at, at best. And ion engines that fire for weeks and weeks and months, yeah, they're incredibly puny and pathetic. So nowhere near. 1g of acceleration so it's all a little bit depressing you're not going to be able to do it like that certainly not in any time soon but there's mm. another way jamie oh finally a bit of good news and that is to spin oh yes bring on the spin we've all experienced uh, fake gravity when you get on like a merry-go-round and you can feel yourself being pushed back into your seat or in pushback or having to hold on to yeah, something time. because you're feeling this force. Yeah. However, there are some downsides to this force. It, there isn't an equivalence with this force. There is definitely a way that you can tell that you're not experiencing gravity, and that is because you are spinning, basically. And, uh, mm. and, and of course, the big one that everyone talks about is the Coriolis effect the coriolis effect and we did talk about this on episode one to one because we had it as space word of the week we did we've got an ariane launch this uh this week flies from the csg in french guiana in kourou uh, as you know and and the reason why it's down there in south america because it's on the equator and it's a really ace place to launch from because you can fly east and get the spin of the earth which at the the equator is about a thousand miles an hour, a thousand miles an hour, a thousand miles an hour, and so that gives you quite a bump to get to the necessary speed which you need to get to if you want to orbit the Earth, basically. Yeah, that's right. To orbit the Earth, you have to be going fast enough that as you fall, you keep missing the Earth itself, which is about 17,100 miles an hour at the International mm. Space Station height. So that 1,000 mile an hour is a pretty useful little bump to get to you to, another, to get you to your 17,000 miles an hour required. 
So remember, when you're up on the International Space Station, it's not because you're far from Earth that you feel no gravity. In fact, gravity at the International Space Station is almost as high as it is on the Earth itself, Hmm. on the surface of the Earth. It's not really not that much different. However... The reason why the, the astronauts feel as though that there's microgravity is because they're falling. They're actually, the whole thing is falling towards Earth, but obviously it keeps missing it, mm. <laughs> uh, which is best, yeah. uh, best shown in that cannonball um, thing that Newton drew all those many years ago. Many years ago. Yes. Um, so, yeah, uh, obviously astronauts feel... Uh, get a whole bunch of artificial gravity when they rocket up in the first place. To get out of the atmosphere, they go straight up and feel this 3G, um, three times gravity pushing them down into their seat because of the acceleration. Uh, but then they, they roll over and start to go, once they're out of the atmosphere, they start getting this uh, speed up so that they can actually get up to this 17,000 miles an hour that, that is orbit. And the moment they switch off their engines, everything goes weightless. It's a great, it's, a, it's one of those great shots. The moment they stop accelerating, they go from feeling gravity to suddenly everything floating around in the spacecraft. Oh, I just really want to experience that one day, Matt. Yeah, yeah it would be absolutely you know? awesome, wouldn't it? So we know that it's possible. We, we, we know all these things work, but Coriolis is a weird one. So if we had Ariane 6, instead of going east, it decided that it was going to do a polar launch, in other words, go north. Now, the weird thing about that is it's going a 1,000 miles an hour to start with. So as it takes off and starts flying north, it's already going a 1,000 miles an hour in the easterly direction along That's the right. spin of the Earth, right? So, as it flies, by the time it's got to New York, New York is only going 766 miles an hour. So, if you think about it, the the further north it goes, the more the Earth is dragging behind it. So, the rocket will appear to bend to the right. In fact, it does bend to the right. And in actual fact, that's why hurricanes will all uh, rotate anti-clockwise in the northern hemisphere and, and clockwise in the southern hemisphere because of this bending that's caused by the Coriolis effect, right? So even though that Coriolis effect is, is really a sort of fictitious force, it's to do with the frame of reference that you're looking at, it's still very real. It causes real Is that effects. like when people say that the, the toilet... Uh, that when you're water down a sink or a toilet goes another way in Australia to here. Do you know what? Well, that's I, not true, is it? I I think that it's a bit of an urban myth. I think that I think like everything, there's an element of truth to it. I think that mm. if you if you pulled the plug in your bath a billion times, there might be some statistical push towards it going anti-clockwise or clockwise depending on which hemisphere you're in but actually i can't remember what the answer to that was but yes it's a little bit of an urban myth and let's not let's not try that experiment because you know we need to save water on this podcast so a yeah, billion times might might be too much well it's a classic one for chaos theory as well like any any kind of initial condition is going to have much more of a rev- relevance on it than the coriolis effect very true. When you think about it, it's 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 obviously a little bit silly. 
Well, let's pay it no mind. So linear acceleration in a rocket has given you all this gravity. But if you've got a rotating structure like in in, in the old sci-fis, that uses a centrifugal force. Or, put it another way, is actually the centripetal acceleration via a normal force in a non-rotating frame of reference. <laughs> so, if I, let, me, <laughs> let, me, let me put it like a little bit more ridiculous. So, artificial gravity is created by a centripetal force. So, as mm. you're moving in a circular path, the floor of this, of this circular space station has to keep pushing you to stop you traveling in a straight line into space. So as you're sort of rotating, all the time the floor is pushing you towards the center to stop you flying off into space. Yes. But that actually feels like it's a force coming from the center. So the centripetal force is what's actually forcing you into the center. And that is, the force is actually supplied by the floor of the spacecraft. And the centrifugal force is what you perceive in your rotating frame of reference as pointing towards downwards from the centre of the spacecraft out to the hull. Uh-huh. So, yeah, that, that's a perceived downward acceleration, equal in magnitude and opposite in direction, Newton's third law, to the centripetal acceleration. So that's what you're feeling. Centrifugal force is pushing you down onto the floor of the spacecraft. It's really the counterpart of the centripetal force of the hull stopping your body going in a straight line, just like the seat in your car when you were turning around the bend. God damn. It's hurting my head again. And that's probably gravity. That's probably gravity. When you kind of get used to it, you can understand <laughs> it. But there are a bunch of annoying things that come with rotating structures. It's not the same. It doesn't have this equivalence to gravity because you can easily tell you're on a rotating structure. Even on a massive rotating structure, you could tell that you were rotating. So there are some design parameters that have to be taken into consideration. How big do you have to make the structure for it to kind of really work? So to get the gravity, obviously, there's only really two components. It's how fast you're spinning and how far from the center you are. So what is your spin rate? How many times, how many revolutions do you have to make? But then obviously yeah. how far away you are from the center also will, will determine what gravity you're feeling. Unlike gravity, the force is pushing from the center, proportional to the distance from the center of the habitat. So if you have it very small, say if, say if the dimensions were only uh, the height of me, so two meters, a, a radius of two meters, we would that it would be a disaster because right at the center where my head is, I'd be feeling no gravity, and down by my feet, I'd be feeling as though I'd I've, I was back on Earth. And of course, what would happen then? All the blood would be rushing down to my feet. So in that case, you know, we know that a two meter radius is going to be absolutely useless. It's going to be well, it's just it's actually going to be dangerous rather than helpful. Yes, um, and you could uh, the equivalence you could think of that as, as a sort of an equivalent to tidal forces, in terms of when you're near something like a grapefruit-sized black hole. Um, oh yeah, wh when your head—if you were going head first, your head would be feeling 
a lot more gravity than your feet. And that would that is what would kind of start pulling you apart, spaghettifying you, in fact. So um, it's a bit like tidal forces, except the other way around in, in, a, um, in a centrifuge. Um, I love the way you said, Jamie, when you go towards a grapefruit-sized black hole, like... It's going to happen, like Jamie. Like it happened last... It's going to happen, is it? It, it, it totally is. Come on, Jamie. When we it's, inev- discover, it's inevitable. When we discover that Planet Nine is a grapefruit-sized black hole, we're both yeah. going to go, right? Well, yeah. What, what, I mean, what, what el- got, so who else is going to report it? Exactly. What else? What else is the Patreon money for? If it's not, <laughs> if it's not for, if, if it's not for that mission, exactly. I have to say, shout out to the patrons. Shout out to the patrons who have been pointing out all week that uh, flying off to this proposed grapefruit-sized black hole is depressingly difficult. Even Voyager isn't. <laughs> Is only a, a small percentage of the way there. That's how big the solar yeah. system is. It's yeah, so it's tricky. It's, it's, Damn it's, it. Yeah, I know. And we it's think big. of Voy- Voyager as leaving the solar system. Yeah, it hasn't anywhere near left the solar system. It's ridiculous. Not at all. So another effect, Jamie, is as as the rotating structure goes round, it needs to be reasonably fast so that when you walk in in the direction of the spin you're not changing your gravity significantly. Because obviously if you walk in the direction of the spin or in the other direction of the spin, now you're changing the amount of gravity that you feel. So Mm. you could become heavier walking in one direction and lighter walking in the other. Now, I don't know about you, but that's probably going to make you feel pretty sick. A little bit queasy. Mm. (laughs) So, but nowhere near as bad as you will feel if you walk in the other direction at a right angle to the direction. And that's where the Coriolis really kicks in. And if you move your head slightly to the side in that kind of direction, it could be that it really messes with the fluid in your inner ear and makes you basically vomit almost immediately. And, you know... Don't talk to me about my inner ear. Problems we've had. Are are you the type of person that gets sick on fairground rides? Um, not really on fairground rides, but yeah, it depends which one you're talking about. Um, on the waltzer, I wouldn't probably feel too good, but yeah, I think I'm normally not too bad. Although, yeah, I think if I'm, if I'm in a car, I can't read. For example, if I'm in the back of a car, I can't read because it makes me feel sick or on a train, as you found out when mm. I tried to do the podcast. Uh, notes, yeah, and then yeah, I ended yeah, up, yeah. You're not, you're not um, good, are you? Throwing up in the, yeah. in the, yeah, in the, t- in the, in the toilet uh, on, on the train. In other words, you've got quite a sensitive vestibular system. Um, Only when I read weirdly, everything else is fine. Stick me on a boat. I'm all right. Yeah. I can go on a roller coaster. I guess no it's, as, yeah, as long as you can see and your brain is able yeah. to sort of make sense exactly of the information, that. isn't it? Yeah, um, I'd, I'd probably be a rubbish astronaut because I reckon that they probably at some point have to read something. Oh yeah, oh yeah, no, absolutely, you know? yeah, no, maybe, I, a few, it, maybe a few instructions. I know, but when you're on the space yeah. station, you're not you're not really ex- you're not experiencing any form of movement other than this falling. But you don't know you are falling. You're just yeah, you, true. So you you might find you're okay. Although, of course, has anyone a- ever you know when they 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 video the astronauts arriving and meeting the others on the ISS. Has anyone instantly thrown up? Because <laughs> I th- I think that would be me. 
Well, I told you about that the the senator that threw up, and they now name oh, yeah. how sick you get because he was just he he just didn't stop being sick. He was just sick oh, for the entire God. time. I think I think most astronauts are sick when they arrive. You, you, it's actually when you first arrive at the International Space Station, it takes a few hours to even get close to not feeling absolutely awful. My God, when they've got cameras shoved in their face, they must yeah. feel like, oh, just give us give us half an hour at least. Well, I think they do. You know, they do get some time. You know, they don't open the hatch immediately. There's there's quite a few procedures no. that need to happen. So, you know. True. In the same way, they don't follow them into the toilet and watch them going for a poo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, we're just going to leave this. Just going to leave this rolling, Tim. Is that all right? <laughs> Um, can you give us can you give us five minutes yeah but but this whole spinning thing is 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 going to be a problem now we we've talked about this with space habitat so if you want to go back and, and listen to this more in depth we were talking about how big things like the stanford taurus had to be and why they made them so big is so that you actually can create a reasonable um sweet spot where it's not too bad um, but a lot of experiments on Earth have suggested that anything that's more than one rotation per minute is going to make you sick. But there is some good news there in, in the fact that all those experiments, of course, have been done in Earth's gravity. As in, yeah. so far, we've never built this experiment out in space. So it's hard to say whether that that's the vestibular system reacting to the the sort of angle that you're at compared to Earth's gravity itself, which is which you can't sort of shield against. It, it it's all permeating, uh, true, and true. so um, it, it might mean that you can probably get people up to about ten RPM if you train them, but six revolutions per minute seems to be like a would be hard, it'd be very difficult to get used to, but the health benefits might be actually really, really good. So a sweet spot might be something like six revolutions a minute with a 20-metre radius. Now, it has to be 20 metres because we've talked about that whole idea of if you're, you know, it has to be significantly more than your height so that your body doesn't feel a difference between your head and your feet. Yes, uh, when you're going round. So there is a uh, there is a sort of sweet spot comfort zone, and that I reckon would be about the minimum. But uh, yeah, that, there's been a few designs, Jamie. Do you want to? There's um, the probably the best of the designs is one called Nautilus X. Oh, I like it already. Which is the non-atmospheric universal transport intended for lengthy United States exploration. Now, that Boom. is that is some form of acronym right there. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> Nautilus I'm into X. It. So that's a rotating 12-meter diameter uh, space station concept. You'll notice that's underneath my sweet spot of 20 meters. But, you know, this is... This is a space station that is, you know, you, where you get to and, and it gives you some gravity at least. You know, it's it's not the perfect solution, but it's one that's that's doable. So this was Mark Holderman and Edward Henderson of the Technology Applications Assessment Team at NASA. 
They reckon that this would cost $3.7 billion to build, this spacecraft, and it was a sort of floating space station, a stopover point for astronauts. Uh, and it used off-the-shelf parts like uh, the Bigelow or Bigelow inflatables um, and other sort of satellite components that are readily available, hence the cheap cost. I mean, that's a lot cheaper than the Orion capsule, for example. That's a lot cheaper. Uh, like a lot cheaper. Uh, it would only take about five years to build, so slightly quicker than the International Space Station. Uh, nice. Uh, and you'd have this 6.5 meter by uh, wide and 14 meter long corridor that inside the hoop. So that would be like the hoop. So quite a bit smaller than the the most people have seen this in in 2001: A Space Odyssey, where he's going for his morning jog around the Taurus. That's right. It's obviously yeah. smaller than that one, but not much smaller. Um, so yeah, the, the actual the actual centrifuge itself is made from this in, inflatable structure, utilizing Hoberman sphere expandable structures, and Beautiful. and the whole rotation would be caused by Hughes three seven six spin stabilized comsats. So. That was quite cool. And uh, they went further and said you could build a demonstrator that would hook on the side of the ISS. And uh, right. Yeah, but this was only 9.1 metres in diameter, but it would only cost about maximum $143 million, which I think is uh, pretty good, right? $143 million for the first That's centrifuge in space. I'll uh, take it. Yeah. And it could be launched on a single Atlas V launch. Now, I have to say, the numbers are pretty disappointing. As oh. in, if it was rotating at 10 revolutions a minute, which is the absolute maximum, I reckon, you'd have to be trained to be able to even cope with it at all. Uh, you'd only be getting 0.51 Gs. At four revolutions a minute, which would be pretty grim still, You'd only be yeah. getting 0.08 G's version. 0.8, okay, okay. But that's better than nothing. And at least they could actually look at things like eight revolutions a minute would give you sort of Mars gravity. So at least you could mm. actually start to see what the hell's going to happen here. True, true. And a really interesting one is if you've got this system that you can you can speed up and slow down, when, you, when it picks people up from Mars, it keeps them at this 0.3 gravity rotation and slowly ramps it up as it goes towards earth on the journey so that they slowly acclimatize back to earth's gravity again and are ready to get off like nothing's ah, ever okay. happened which is pretty cool isn't it perfect crime that all sort of came to an end in 2011 that that research and <sighs> i haven't heard anything more about it uh there was another paper called uh, or realizing a 2001 Space Odyssey piloted spherical torus nuclear fusion propulsion by Craig H. Williams, Leonard A. Dutsinski et al. Okay. And that was a, another really cool vehicle, this time a massive, massive Earth to Jupiter vehicle that refueled at Titan and stuff like this. Yeah, it looks and very good. It is very, very cool. And it's got a crew compartment that's on sort of the end of a three three modules that spin around um almost looks like a weather vane though those sort of little weather vanes that you have on top of boats that measure wind speed that's true 
It does. And the end, the the arms look like little um, golf Not, tees. They do, don't they? Or, or those lollipops. Oh yeah, I remember yeah. them. Um, yeah, so that's got three structures that spin around. So that's a seventeen meter arm, and it only achieves naught point two Earth gravity. Hmm. Um, with a rotation rate of three point two five. So that sound, that sounds pretty good. And of course, the one of the reasons why they sort of gave that is the kind of sum up to all this is that no one really knows the effect of artificial gravity uh, on on human physiology. And so really the only way you can design a spaceship is to just base it on other side effects like this moving around and the Coriolis effect and, and this changing gravity as you move around and the difference between your head and your toes. You, so, you basically say, well, the minimum we want is 02 gravity which is the same as lunar yeah. gravity because that seems to be about the minimum that's required to give you locomotion to be able to walk around and actually work properly uh-huh um you need to be able to have uh, a, a maximum walking speed that's that's a quarter of the maximum rim speed so there needs to be you need to be able to sort of factor that in. You need to think about this tangential Coriolis force. Um, so so you've got to you've got to be really careful about how you know the height of your astronaut and how how long the kind of spokes are of your torus. And so you end up right. with these kind of acceptable rotation speeds which have got to be between 6 RPM and 10 RPM at the absolute most, and you kind of need a minimum spoke length of about 15 metres. So that kind of gives you the constraints, and and it's it's difficult to build, but but we need to do it, don't we? I think we do. I've I've got to give one last mention to, as I was researching this, I found a YouTube... Um, a YouTuber called Small Stars, who okay. has done a really cool one called the GLS, which is using starships. So it's called the Gravity Link Starship concept. And you have right. three starships, and the central uh, starship, the, the, the big one of the starships, instead of having anything on board, it's just got truss. You know, like lighting truss and all <laughs> that we use. It's a, it's uh-huh. got that all just stuffed in it, and then you 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 unload that, and it becomes the central hub of of this wheel, and the truss becomes the spokes out to two other um, starships, and then the starships get hooked onto this truss, and then they can just use some of their fuel to get the thing spinning. And then the starships, of course, either end of the spokes, will have artificial gravity, and you can and you can change this using the thrusters on the starships themselves, so uh, that you can you know build up gravity or reduce gravity on your way to Mars or build it up on the way back home, all those kind of things. And so you've got complete control of your spin using the starships themselves. And I think it's a really really interesting concept. So I'm going to put a link to that video in the in I love the show that. Notes. I really want to see that. Yeah, it's really cool. It's really, really cool. And and he's thought about quite a few things and, and it, you know, it's a really 
cool idea. Slightly better, I think, than the Mars Direct one where they have a sort of cable connecting them. I like the truss idea because it seems to be slightly easier to slow yourself down and, and, and speed yourself up and all the sort of things that you need to do because you've got this solid link rather than a floppy cable <laughs> between you and you. The, 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 the thing. So, Jamie, do you want to listen to my interview with, with Jack? I absolutely want nothing more. Let's have, roll it. Uh, well, but I, I've just got to say this: this guy is—he's—he's a—he's essentially a doctor of gravity, and wow. he works. Yeah, he works. That's a hell for, of a title. He is, yeah, he works at STEC. He's a sort of contributing scientist there. He's won multiple awards. He's worked in this area for a very, very long time. Highly uh, respected expert. And he's won a few medals as well for his contributions to the field of gravitational and space life science research. Incredible. And, wow. And, an awards, and awards for his books, The Generation and Applications of Extraterrestrial Environments on Earth. So, Jeez, is there nothing he can't do? Well, when it comes to gravity, really nice, really nice bloke as well. I... Um, I, I let him down on the first call because I made some a a a, a, a Zoom mistake, shifting people around. And uh, but no, he was super happy to talk to me. And and I, I was yeah. I'd, if we have to, if we talk, if we ever want to talk about gravity again, we have to get Jack back on. Really. Well, it's good job that he forgave you, Matt, because was, gravity doesn't forgive. No, very unforgiven. So, Jamie, a the Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. Right, so I'm joined on the podcast by Jack Van Loon, who is from the Free University of Amsterdam. He is also a uh, cooperating scientist at STEC for ESA. It's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show, so welcome to the podcast. You're welcome. The paper that you sent, um, start by describing the, the sort of problem that it sets out, I suppose, because it's certainly one that I'd not really given much thought to, but after reading the paper, I, I, it, it kind of definitely swung me round. Yeah, well, actually, uh, what we describe in the paper is basically whether it's ethical to expose uh, people and especially space workers, so employees of space agencies or private industries or whatever, if it's ethical to expose people for a long period to uh, microgravity or to the lack of gravity. That is actually where, where the paper is about. And uh, you, we know that uh, although you always see these happy faces and smiling astronauts and people under you know free fall or microgravity condition, it is really not a healthy environment. Um, and we know that since, since you know, Salyut and, and Skylab times in the 70s, that, um, you know, when you don't have gravity, so um, for a long period of time, uh, you lose bone, you lose muscle, your immune system is deprived, your cardiovascular system is uh, deconditioned, uh, your, your cognition um, uh, uh, deteriorates, uh, recently, you see changes in 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 brain uh, uh, composition or morphology. Uh, there might be other cardiovascular things like like um, uh, thrombosis um, and so on. So it's it's or tendency towards. So it's you know microgravity is not a healthy environment. And we had the thought like okay, 
if I am an astronaut uh, and I'm, uh, you know, employed by, you know, by a space agency, it's a bit strange that you are exposed to these, uh, you know, unhealthy conditions. It's it's the same as you are, uh, you know, a radiation worker in, in a hospital or an industry or, uh, you know, a nuclear power plant. I mean, you need to be protected from a hostile environment. And our our um, uh, statement in that paper is that we do not do enough to protect uh, space workers from a hostile environment being uh, microgravity. That's basically the, the you know the message of that paper. Yeah, was it really known how bad microgravity was, or is it something that the over over the course of the last few decades people have have thought, oh, that's actually much worse than we thought, or has it always been known that it was pretty bad for you well to a certain extent it has been known that's what i said you know since in skylab and saw times we know about muscle and, and and bone that it's very well studied um but uh, especially with the long duration um, um uh, space station missions you know with with people going up there for half a year and and the russians you know um, some of these cosmonauts have been out there for more than a thousand days or nearly a thousand days um so for these long duration missions, we know more and more what this does to a human body. And uh, lately you have um, a problem with vision, the VIP uh, and SANS, the, the visual, well, it used to be called a visual impairment due to intracranial pressure. Uh, and now it's called space at a space associated neuro something uh, um, <laughs> uh, disease I forgot the, the acronym mm. sorry but it's it's uh, I mean these are really symptoms um, uh, from long duration space flight and and I mean it is most likely very well likely related to the lack of of gravity to people I mean don't I mean we are evolved as human beings uh, you know over millions of years or thousands of years. Uh, under a 1G gravity environment. This is where our body is used to uh, used to, to live in, and we are adapted to this 1G environment. It is also not healthy it, if we would, you know, if we would live in a 2G environment because our bodies are not capable of, of coping with a long-duration 2D environment, uh, as we are not capable to cope with a long-duration microgra- microgravity environment. We're not going to die immediately, but... You know, it's a very slow process. And, um, you know, one of the statements we have in that paper is, um, you know, if you look into the International Space Station, for instance, people call about a life support system, which means that you can live in a certain environment, which means that you have a certain temperature, you have a certain pressure, you have oxygen and so on. So you can live there. And our uh, statement is that, I mean, in these space environments, you also need to provide gravity because that is an essential part of what we need as a human being to live uh, happy and healthy. And that is not provided, um, you know, in, in space age, for instance, or, you know, when going to Mars in, in uh, an, a non-rotating spacecraft. Because even, I mean, you have some studies where... Um, I mean, people are using on what is called countermeasures, which means that uh, you try to to counteract the effect of the lack of gravity. So astronauts train like like one and a half, two hours a day, five days a week, 
uh, to keep their body in shape. Yeah, and this is because one of them is because of the lack of gravity. Um, so first of all, it costs like 10 hours per person a week. So that's a loss of uh, of efficiency in the whole system because you know you cannot do anything else. And I don't know how much an astronaut hour costs, but you know uh, it's it's uh, probably more than I make in an hour. <laughs> um, and and also uh, it is it is not uh, you know all these countermeasures they have they are helpful, but they're not completely. Um, uh, uh, not completely helpful to all the uh, uh, all the, the disadvantages this microgravity provides you. That is what I said. Like these changes in the brain, changes in the cardiovascular system, and so on, are just you know these are new things that popped up for the last years or even the last year, uh, where people uh, at NASA and ESA and, and other space agencies were not aware of. And there might be more things that that we are not aware of, and uh, and I think it is unethical to expose, you know, space workers to 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 such an environment. It's a bit strange, you know. If if I would if I would apply for a job, uh, and then the space agency says, yeah, come and 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 work with me. I mean, I mean, yeah, you're gonna lose some bone and you're gonna lose some 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 muscle. Maybe your cardiovascular system goes down. Uh, your immune system is a bit uh, deprived. Maybe your cognition goes down. But hey, come and work with us. And by the way, you also get a lot of space radiation and 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 solar flares, uh, whatever. When you when you you work for me, it's a bit strange. So um, you know, we should we should think about a means to to counteract that and one of the means is to provide them gravity so yeah do you is there any kind of indication about how much gravity is going to be required to sort of get anywhere near a, a point where you're not having all these side effects no i mean it is uh, there has some experiments done on on uh on on mice uh where they had mice in a small centrifuge in flight where it seems, and we well, we did ourselves. We did some experiments with plants, um, where it seems that Mars G, so 0.38 G, might be you know somewhat similar to 1 G with plants. Uh, Moon G is is more like microgravity with plants. Uh, with animals, you also see some uh, relatively positive effects. You know, working on on Mars G. Um, but for humans, we don't know anything, and that's another reason why we should have a large rotating spacecraft uh, in in low Earth orbit in LEO, because then we can do that work. Why do we need to go all the way to Mars to find out that 0.30 AG is maybe not a very good and healthy conditions for human? We can do that in LEO, which is much safer because we are close by. If there's anything, you know, we can quickly within a couple of hours, uh, you know, we can land and and you know be in a hospital if needed. Um, and it is totally new technology. It is totally new science. So, you know, it it should also be very attractive for for space agencies, you know, from a scientific point of view, to learn about how the human body adapts to long duration Mars or Moon G. Um, you know, in a safe, close by, relatively close by environment, being in a low Earth orbit. Yeah. So, obviously, the NASA and ESA have built the International Space Station, and uh, that's obviously at a huge, huge, huge cost. And they've obviously got other life support systems that presumably are extremely expensive. So, what what do you think it is? Because it's not it's it's not really 
you know, an unknown thing, the rotating spacecraft. It's 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 been the dream of science fiction even before Apollo. So what is it that's because I was left really bemused after reading the paper and some of the papers that uh, were cited that that it was like, yeah, why has there not been more effort placed on building a rotating um, you know, artificial gravitational spacecraft? I think it's it's purely budget, and if you and but then you have to ask, and there's where the ethics kicks in. So what is what is the life of an astronaut worth? Yeah, I mean, are you willing to spend ten or twenty percent more budget? But because that is about the amount of money you talk about, but uh, more studies are needed to really identify how much more uh, uh, budget is needed to to come up with a rotating spacecraft. But what is the cutoff? I mean, what do you accept as uh, providing your space workers with an unhealthy environment? I mean, instead of providing a healthy environment and 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 the cost involved. I mean, this is a discussion uh, people need to to have in the open um, in 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 where that cutoff lies. So. I think it is not the technology because in principle we could do it. There are some papers on on how you could do it and what you mentioned, it was actually the Russian uh, 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 pioneer, space pioneer Tchaikovsky, who came with a rotating spacecraft already in 1903. So, you know, more than 115 years ago. Um, So it is something which, you know, has been around and around and around for years. Uh, uh, you know, to 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 be developed. So it's it's a cost issue, um, but even with this cost issue, I mean, what's the benefit? First of all, you take better care of your employees. Uh, secondly, if you go for commercial spaceflight, which you know uh, is now a lot of people are looking into that. You know, if I would have a business model uh where i would expose my uh, my customers which pay i don't know 5 million 10 million to to be in space for two weeks i mean one of the disadvantages of being under microgravity for a long duration is that you get um, you know space adaptation syndrome so you can get sick you know you feel awful um, uh, being under microgravity for a long period of time i mean that doesn't seem to be like a good business model to pay 10 10 million to be sick for two weeks. I mean, <laughs> so, uh, you know, also for these sort of environments, I think it's good to have a 1G in 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 space environment so people can go there and, and feel normal and have the option to go, let's say, to the central part of it or, or whatever the configuration of such a spacecraft is to be under weightlessness conditions. I'm not saying that, you know, weightlessness should be abandoned. No, no, but it, it should be... Uh, it, it, it should be... It should be available for people to go there to do the things that you want to do or to to to, to develop the technology you need to be uh, you need to be exposed to to under microgravity conditions and so on. So you can still still do the work and the experiments like on the ISS, but the living conditions or your your life support conditions is also providing gravity. So. You know, it's a budget issue, and it's and and by that I also hear from some colleague scientists uh, discussing it. Some of them really like a sort of Pavlov reaction, say, "Yeah, yeah, but that's too expensive." Like that's the end of the discussion. No, it's it's not the end of the discussion. And if you if you look at you know what, for instance, nowadays the launch cost of of SpaceX uh, is, if you compare that to you know five years ago, whatever, it's like. 
I don't know, like 10 or 20% of the launch costs from, from five years ago going with shuttle or another, another launcher. So, you know, yes, it's more expensive to build such a, uh, such a rotating spacecraft, uh, uh, bringing up things in orbit, but hey, you pay like 80% less per launch than, than five or 10 years ago. So, you know, maybe it's not that expensive after all. Yeah, I mean, well, actually, that that brings in a, a, a really good point. If you've got, if you've got people like Elon Musk and all the the sort of commercial uh, players coming on board, which which have, like you said, they've reduced launch cost by at least an order of magnitude. So it's kind of the excuse of expense has peeled away. And do do NASA actually turn around to providers like uh, SpaceX and say, okay, well, we've got to build an interplanetary transport system if we're going to go to places like mars um you need to develop purely for ethical reasons if we're going there we, we can't expect people to be in microgravity for 180 days or a year and then work on mars where we have no idea what even you know a third gravity is going to be like as well is is <laughs> And, and we could have such an idea if we make this third, you know, mass gravity in a rotating spacecraft in LEO, in low Earth mm. orbit. So uh, we can we can gain experience in what happens if you are at a certain G condition for a longer period of time. How can you adapt? Um, you know, and, and this is stuff we can, you know, we can start, uh, you know, tomorrow in, 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 in thinking about it and engineering it and building it instead of going to Mars. I mean, we need to prepare there's no lo- there's no landing party waiting for you when 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 you come to mars so you have to be self sufficient but can you be self sufficient and and how does this transition from from microgravity if we if we're not going with a you know with a rotating spacecraft so what happens if you are in microgravity for a year and then you come into into mars g uh, without support, I mean, how does the body respond, and what can you and 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 can't you do in that environment? And this is this is all research we you know we 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 can do in low Earth orbit. Yeah, is this is this something that you yeah you would rather see people tack, tackling this thing in low Earth orbit rather than say tackling it in in lunar orbit? Because obviously there's there's a certain there's only a certain amount of space stations that you can maintain. Um, but yeah, I mean, what, what do you think is the kind of roadmap for an, a, a more ethical um, treatment of our astronauts? There is no roadmap. It's not within what we know, what I know about the roadmap uh, ESA and NASA is working on. A rotating spacecraft is not part of it. And um, I mean, they are working on uh, uh, thinking and working on smaller uh, centrifuges, like centrifuges that could be incorporated in the, let's say, in the diameter of of a regular spacecraft, like what you have now for ISS, for instance. It's uh, what is the diameter? Let's say uh, about four meters or something. So you can build um, a centrifuge in in a four meter uh, diameter system, but. Um, it is not providing a sufficient amount, well, that's what we think, it's not providing a sufficient amount of gravity over the body because if you have a centrifuge, such a small radius centrifuge, um, your feet are experiencing a much higher G-level than your head, which is nearly in the center of rotation, so it doesn't provide any any you know gravity force. 
and one of the most important sensing system of, of gravity is in your inner ear, is the vestibular system, and that is not properly exposed to gravity. So, um, and over your body, there's a huge gradient of gravity. So, it is not, it is not, it is not the gravity you would see on Earth. You know, it's it's again uh, a sort of countermeasure, which might work to a certain extent. And and I think it's it definitely, um, from a scientific point of view, it is definitely worthwhile looking into. But I don't think it is it's, it's a proper solution. And we are developing these countermeasures and 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 doing science and providing grants and whatever for years now, spending millions. While you know we could also spend these millions in actually engineering and developing a large rotating spacecraft, and for sure, we know that a lot of these effects uh, seen from space, not talking about radiation, but a lot of these gravity-related effects will disappear because you provide them gravity. I mean, there's no discussion on on you know, well, shall we provide like 10% oxygen to astronauts? I mean, it will not kill them directly, but you know, they still survive. No. We provide them 21% of oxygen because that's what we have on Earth. Why don't we do the same with gravity? Yeah, I mean, I, I, it, it, yeah, it is really curious, actually. I mean, it, it was it was definitely reading that paper that that whole aspect of it comparing it to other other elements that you would that you would take for granted was quite surprising. And I guess it's because ever since the first man went into space it's we've just treated that as as uh, as a given that they that they're not going to have gravity so my one question that i've never seen really fully answered with with astronauts visit uh, that stay particularly for example scott kelly who stay on a long time on something like the iss is is there severe long term um illnesses that are caused by this, but by the lack of gravity, or is it something that the body recovers from? Uh, I think there is not too much uh, evidence on that. I know two examples. Um, uh, one of them is uh, some recent study by um, by uh, groups from from the US as well as from Europe, looking into the brain morphology of astronauts and cosmonauts. And there you see in long duration uh, um, uh, uh, long duration missions, so astronauts, cosmonauts that have been up there for half a year, you see changes in brain morphology. I don't know for how long they will remain, uh, you know, when they are back on Earth. There's another study looking into bone morphology uh, from a group uh, from um, uh, Dr. Fico in, in Saint-Étienne in France. Um, and she had shown that even after one year of return of cosmonauts, so one year at 1G again, you still see uh, a decrease in, in bone strength and, and bone structure in these cosmonauts. So at least it takes a year and, and, and you're not fully recovered after one year. So And there might be other effects uh, where people have not looked into it uh, uh, clearly. So I wouldn't be surprised that you find it you know, with other things as well. I mean, this this visual impairment, which I I mentioned uh, uh, earlier, uh, I don't long, I don't know how long that will remain uh, with some of these uh, with some of these astronauts. And, and again, I mean, <laughs> we know we know how to solve it. Yeah, <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, with, with something like the ISS, did it has it lived up to your expectations in terms of research on something like this? 
Uh, it's getting better. Um, it is uh, as you know. I, we did. Uh, I'm I'm from the shuttle. I'm, I mean, I'm an old guy. I'm I'm from the shuttle era, uh, doing experiments in 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 space lab, and we also did some Russian experiments. So I was very glad, um, you know, with with ISS coming on. But what I do see in ISS, it is I I, I call it, um, you know, with these shuttles, it was. You prepare for it, you know when the launch is going to be, and you have to be ready uh, with your experiment and with the hardware and everything involved at that particular year, at that particular month, at that particular day, at that particular hour. Yeah, You know when the thing is going to be launched and you need to be ready. For ISS, which is a permanent uh, a permanent station, you know, when you're not ready for this launch, maybe you're ready for the next launch. So the urgency of, of really tight planning and getting things done in time is a bit more relaxed. So it is. So things somehow were, you know, implemented slower. That was my 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 feeling. And uh, but what I see now for the last couple of years, and especially in in the US, but also in Europe, it's it's um, it's it's coming. Uh, is with these with these more commercial providers. Um, you know, they provide uh, access to the ISS from. You know, not through ESA or NASA, but more through commercial parties, and there this speed is is picked up again. So it it doesn't take that long anymore to to fly an experiment. Um, but yeah, most I mean I'm a scientist from 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 a university, uh, so I need you know I need to have my funding through you know governmental uh, entities. So it's not that easy always to go via um, uh, commercial providers. But I think it's it's a good uh, development to you know to have these commercial guys involved and and to speed up the the process of having your experiment flown. Yeah. So is there any other sort of groups of people or or other other people like yourself who are pushing for that who are pushing really to say like enough is enough we we can't have astronauts exposed to microgravity all the time uh you have some other f- yeah i mean i have some some colleagues i mean we we working on on another uh, uh well let's say a pre-step of this uh what we call the human hypergravity habitat which is basically a centrifuge on earth um uh, a 200 meter diameter uh, rotating you know, a rotating system for people to live in for weeks or months under a hypergravity, so higher than 1G uh, condition. Um, and in that system, we, we can already start to learn about what happens with a human being, uh, being for a long time under in a rotating environment, and in this case, under hypergravity conditions. And, and this is, a, let's say, an initiative where some 70 to 80 uh, scientists and engineers you know, are willing, are interested in, you know, to start with. But I know that many more people are interested in it. And, and you know, we, we, we're trying to see whether we, you know, we, we find a way to, to get this realized, to get it funded and realized uh, somewhere. So it is, it is something uh, people are interested in. But again, it, let's say for in-flight application, it's, it's, I think it's a budget issue, but, and, and this needs to be, you know, that needs to be reconsidered and and looked into again. You know, from an ethical point of view, from the um, medical issues uh, we have, uh, and also from the costs again by using commercial launchers and 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 revisit the opportunity. And yeah, I mean, we have a space station now, but for how long? Maybe another ten years or so. 
But if we want to have a rotating spacecraft, we should start engineering and thinking about it now so we can replace the ISS in due time with, um, you know, with, with, with a rotating spacecraft and also not neglecting, you know, the microgravity part of it because that is needed also for scientific and technology reasons. We need a microgravity environment because it's a unique environment to do a lot of scientific research. Yeah, but from a human health and, and ethical point of view, we need to provide gravity. Yeah, I mean, I, I really like that idea that you alluded to earlier on about a, a rotating spacecraft that has one one level of it, of course, that would be at the gravity of Mars. So you kind of get the double whammy, don't you? You get, you get keeping astronauts at uh, human gravity, you get the experiments of what it might be like to live on Mars, and you get the microgravity in the centre, so... Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's. I mean, to... it's it, it is complicated. But on the other hand, I mean, uh, you know, I think it's also from from a space agency or engineering point of view, it's 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 a challenge. It's you know, it's. I think it's a very interesting thing to do. Yeah, and I actually think that the the public. I mean, you, I don't think it would be a particularly hard sell to the public either, in terms of yeah, this is what we want to do. It's it's quite an exciting project i think probably for me it seems more exciting than going back to the moon if i'm honest but uh, yeah so I, I don't it seems yeah you'd be it would be an easier sell i mean I, maybe it's just the fact that people haven't re-looked at the uh, at the kind of economics of it now that launch cost is is plummeting essentially yeah and is it uh you know what what, what is the yeah may, maybe also people uh, uh, associate, you know, space with microgravity, and uh, you know, maybe it's I, I don't know I, I don't know what other reasons. Are we now looking with with some people? We now looking into, um, you know, the pre and cons of having a rotating spacecraft from an engineering point of view, um, because you know most of these these uh, 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 papers that has been published in the past, it was or or, or talks from people. Uh, was really the cost issue, but but we wanted to, I mean, in this new paper we're working on, um, you know, we really want to look into the technology, what the advantages and also the disadvantages are. Uh, you know, if you have a 1G environment in flight, I mean, the nice thing of being under microgravity is that you can use the floors and the ceiling and, and the sides to do stuff, yeah? Mm. While living in a 1G environment, you can only use the floor, as to live on, I mean. So your your surface area of living is is you know is is increased under microgravity conditions because you can go anywhere, and and so there's a disadvantage having a rotating spacecraft at a certain g level because then you live on the floor all the time, and uh, so this is a disadvantage of it, and and you have probably more disadvantages if you compare that to a microgravity environment, but you also have use advantages also from an engineering point of view i mean all fluid um, you know systems that are involved with, with with fluid lines and fluid physics i mean it's much easier to do that in a 1g environment it's also much more reliable uh, than uh, than under microgravity conditions uh, convection uh, you have in 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 an in a rotating spacecraft which you do not have in a you know in a free fall system so i mean they're all kind of technologies that are impacted being under microgravity or in a, a 1G or partial gravity environment. Where's the best place for people to uh, go and visit your work or, or to sort of delve deeper into all this? Uh, oh, yeah. If they want to read, they, you know, if they just Google my name, then they find some papers and, and, and uh, you know, uh, 
it's most I try always try we always try to publish in in uh, open source uh, journals uh, so I mean people should be able to go there um, one of the one of the sites for the uh, large centrifuge which we think of you know uh, having it on earth somewhere is uh, you have to go to the H3 facility so um, hotel 3 and then facility.eu which is a you know, a website to, to, to describe, you know, this ground-based uh, system with some reference to, you know, to other rotating spacecraft. So um, you yeah. can Google it and you, you'll find something. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll find the links and, and, and stick them into the, in, into the podcast notes. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to add in before we before I let you get on with your valuable evening <laughs> <laughs> no uh, you know I, well I want to thank you for for having the time listening to to this you know to our views on on that and I really hope it's picked up by you know by entities like like ESA like like NASA like JAXA uh, uh, or CSA whatever to to really look into this and to actually construct engineer and construction spacecraft because Again, I think it's unethical if we uh, deprive our space workers and especially our governmental space workers from, um, you know, from gravity. Yeah, yeah, and I, I just think, I just think practically, I just, I just cannot. <laughs> for me, I just can't conceive of how, like you said, there is no, there is no team on the ground to welcome the astronauts as they land on Mars and 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 sort of <laughs> their hideously weak bodies trying to even cope with small amount of gravity just seems to be almost a crazy endeavor so i th- i think yeah it's it's just the lack of research isn't it the lack of what gravity does to you and the lack of what radiation does to you just seems to be we we seem to be very much in the dark yeah and 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 if if you look at the combination of gravity and or re- reduce gravity and, and radiation again this is also what we could do to a certain extent in leo uh although we're still protected by the van allen belt of course um uh but yeah we can start you know looking into this combined effects of of partial gravity and 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 radiation uh also making use of this rotating spacecraft and this rotating spacecraft we in principle could rotate on any on any speed going from 1g to to you know to moon g to mars g and uh, we can expose, uh, you know, a series of, of human subjects, you know, to these gravity levels for half a year or a year, whatever you you want. And then um, we can look in these effects. So it's it's completely a new science. It's a bit strange that, um, you know, we know, you know, we know quite a bit of how the human body responds to microgravity with, you know, with, with start with Yuri Gagarin up, up till now, uh, we know pretty well how the human body responds to microgravity for a long period of time although there are still quite things uh, quite some things hidden as we know from the last year uh, but we know very little about how the human body responds to any other g levels 1g of course we know on earth but moon g there are only you know a couple of people that that uh, has been exposed to moon g for uh, you know hours or, or a couple of days but mars g we don't know uh, 1.2 G, we don't know, um, and I think there's a lot of it to be discovered. I mean, if you we are now in COVID area, um, it's an interesting thing that um, if you look into animal research, there's a lot of animal research done in centrifuges. So uh, mice and rats and, and and fish and snails and you know a lot of animals have been exposed to long duration hypergravity um, uh, situation, really weeks or months. Um, 
there has been done experiments uh, on mice, for instance, that were uh, challenged with uh, rhinitis, so uh, sort of, uh, uh, let's call it sort of flu or whatever, um, uh, in these animals. And if you expose them to a high G environment, it it uh, it was shown that they uh, that they recover from this um, from this flu uh, much sooner than animals that were at at one G conditions. So somehow gravity also have some beneficial or prophylactic effect uh, to physiology. You see the same with with Drosophila fruit flies that have been exposed to high G conditions. Uh, for a long period of time, and these these fruit flies were infected with some fungi. You see that the longevity of these animals was increased, so they lived longer uh, while under hypergravity conditions. So, um, you know, maybe it's it's and and also with 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 rats and 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 rabbits, uh, you also see a reduced fat mass in these animals under hypergravity conditions. So. You know, also with the common problem of obesity, I mean, we can do uh, very interesting work on ground exposing people to high gravity conditions and to see how it, um, you know, how, how your obesity is reduced under this uh, under these conditions. I mean, especially the UK is one of the areas where you have a huge growth in obesity, uh, in diabetes and obesity. And and so this might be a new paradigm to be explored. I'm not saying that we have to live in a high G environment uh, for, for the rest <laughs> of your life, but at least it, it's a paradigm to um, you know to explore and to see what we can learn from it and, and maybe find you know another cure or another mechanism to cope with with diabetes and obesity. Yeah, which which yeah, I mean, I suppose that yeah, that that gravity research that that a rotating spacecraft could do as well, or, or or even like you said, the ground facility, actually, yeah, reveals the way that the human body works, or, or at least indicates something that that we might not know. Because yeah, I I can't think for the life of me why being under extra gravity would make you recover from flu faster. But yeah, that but, must, that, <laughs> but that's be... that's a fact. I mean, it's it's uh, and also, I mean, people are probably also for this podcast. Uh, uh, and if I give presentations of this, I always use a nice uh, a nice picture of uh, of Superman. You know, Superman in the original book, uh, Superman could uh, run faster and jump higher than than a human being, and the reason for that is that Superman came from a planet called Krypton. And Krypton had a higher gravity, was you know a higher mass planet than Earth, so his cardiovascular and 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 musculoskeletal system uh, was adapted, you know, was grown, was evolved, let's say, uh, under a high gravity environment. So when he came to Earth, I mean, you could jump higher and and and, and run faster, the same as these astronauts did on the moon, you know, hmm. for human beings, you know evaluated uh, uh, under 1G conditions going to a low G environment. That was the same for uh, Superman coming from Krypton uh, and, and and living on, on, on Earth. So, um, but there's what you see if you if you are uh, exposed to, uh, to a higher G environment, I mean, you probably increase uh, uh, bone strength, muscle strength. So also for athletics, you know, you know about uh, uh, you know, uh, you have these these uh, what do you call that height uh, doping? So you go to live in uh, mountains or mm. for a while uh, before going into a major uh, tournament um, to to increase your uh, hemoglobin and whatever. I mean, what happens if you do your training every day under you know 1.5 g? I mean, 
you probably get stronger. So, you know, you could increase your athletic, um, athletic score and whatever you do. So it's, it's also, yeah, it's an interesting area. So, uh, yeah, I can imagine you getting, uh, funding from football clubs to do this. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the NBA, or I don't know yeah, what. <laughs> trying to, <laughs> trying to push their teams just that little bit further. Thank, uh, well, thank you, uh, really, thank you very much for, for, for coming on. It's, 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 uh, it's a pleasure to speak to someone that's, uh, so learned and and been there and and you've done a lot of work and yeah I I absolutely encourage people to go out and read some of your papers they're they're really really you know accessible as well that I uh, it was I really enjoyed reading the the one that you sent over I shall I shall put it in the notes and uh, yeah thank you very much for for joining me and thank you very much for having um, having an interest in this the interplanetary podcast is alive cool huh. I mean, wow, just incredible. Thank you so much, Jack. I love the Dutch. Me too. Jamie, if people have yep. enjoyed the show, how can they, like Bob and McCult666, who joined the patrons this week, um, join the patrons this week? Well, firstly, welcome, Bob, and McCult or McCulty666. Um, welcome to the clan. If you would like to know more about how you can join and how you can follow us on social media, even buy some merch, there's just one website, www.interplanetary.org.uk. And without your help, and without the help of the glorious Spodcats, this would not be possible. We'd be no one. We'd be out there on the streets. Now it's a double-edged sword with the patrons. Each time I get, each time we get a new member, I get very excited and honoured, but I also get a little bit stressed that I can't let them down, Jamie. No, there's a lot of pressure on it you is, now, Matt. Not yeah. me, because you know I don't really do anything. But I mean, you, <laughs> fucking, that is a lot of pressure. Pressure, keep pushing it up. down. I think you're doing, on you're me. doing very pushing down on you. No, no man has spoke. Uh, Jamie. I've got to go. I've got to get back to the old marking awful dissertations now. Oh, that sounds really boring. I'm off to Margate for the day to see my friend and buy some records. Ooh, I'm I'm off to Kent tomorrow. We didn't plan this very well, did we? Oh, that's a bit annoying, isn't it? Yeah, we'll have to can't believe. We'll have to plan it. We'll have to keep talking to each other. <laughs> yeah, maybe we should talk to each other. Yeah, more we often. don't like talking to each other outside the podcast, do we? Good God, no. Just a bit much. This is purely a friendship made from... (laughs) Made from gravity alone. Oh, social distancing, Jamie. What a bummer. What a bummer. The podcast is ending. Um, I'd like to wish everyone a lovely weekend. Cheerio, Spodcats. Bye-bye. See you soon. Bye. (laughs) 